Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Today I'm talking to Alexander Coggin. Alex's work seeks to deconstruct character one gesture at a time. Stripping back the shiny veneer we all cling to, showing us our weird and wonderful truth. He uses his flash to spotlight these nuanced moments in the everyday, and he calls it magical realism. What I love about his work is that although on first read it feels loose and free, it's unmistakably authored. His images offer an immediate and visceral response while creating a dialogue about the performance of the everyday. His playful tone and distinctive aesthetic make his work instantly recognisable. At a time when social media is the governing force of individual identity politics, Alex's work is focusing on the intersection of sociology and humour to reflect a more honest portrayal of human behaviour. He closes the gap between our perception and reality while keeping fun the lifeblood of his work. This is what makes his work so accessible, refreshing, and what makes the salty truths he reveals more palatable. I went to school. I feel like I've said this my like story about this so many times, so bear with me, because I know you know it. But I went to school for theater. And actually, I was in theater my whole life. So like I grew up and was doing a lot of like child acting and commercials and this kinds of thing. And then I went to school for theater. Um, for musical theater, actually, um, and then transferred to the theater department. Anyway, came out of school and immediately felt like I just didn't have that framework of of where to put my creativity because um, it was so contingent upon having a director and a production and other actors and even making your own work is has a, a sort of self-startedness that I didn't really take to. So I was feeling a bit stagnant. And my then boyfriend, now husband, bought me my first camera wow. in 2010, Christmas of 2010. So um, was photography part of your life before then? Was it something that you went to see, engaged with? I've always been very susceptible to visuals and image, images and image making. And even the way that I thought about theater and the way that I wanted to make theater was um, the visuals came first. Like, especially if I was crafting something, it was always I knew how I wanted it to look. So I always felt very tied to it. And I just think with the pivot for me that made a lot of sense, actually, from theater to photography, that's like the most potent is it's just an extreme voyeuristic curiosity about people. And that was channeled through performing and through interpreting text and scripts and plays and then kind of transferred to like how I can capture that visually, how I can be like as nosy as I fucking want to be (laughs) with my camera visually and kind of investigate things that way. And how did you start? How were those first few? Oh, my God. As a self-taught person, if I showed you the images, you would be like, you are trash. It was, they are, <laughs> I mean, I just, I just as a self-taught person, it's just working digitally being like, whoa, look what this looks like. Like really like basic, basic, basic. Investigation. Total investigation. And like real annoyance. Like I was living in Chicago at that time where, and my husband's family like all lives in Chicago. And so I've, 
I started shooting them from the beginning and they were so like patient with me, just like constantly bringing out my camera and figuring it out. Um, yeah, I just kind of, I think working digitally, it's a, just a tight feedback loop and I just kind of got better and better. And then ugh, fucking somebody bought me a flash and I was like, bye. Game changer. <laughs> I mean, being able to alter an environment and like heighten the reality and make it a little bit more magic was like, again, what I looked for in theater and very addicting to me. Mm-hmm. Just to be able to, and and uh, just adds another level of mediation and curiosity that I'm able to like affect things was like really exciting. Your fascination with character has really come from your love of theater as well. And mm. that really ha- runs through your photography now. Mm. Yeah. I first of all I like seeing faces in movement and motion. I like seeing expressions. I like being able to just to decipher expressions. I like being able to read a face is just so important to me, but also specific. Yeah. And specific spaces, specific people and like. Being, yeah, if I can look at a f- shot that I've done or that anybody's done, honestly, and it spurs so much more going on in my imagination, if I can craft such like a story because I do have a very a- active imagination, that for me is a, sh- a successful shot for me. It needs to be, it's like a starting place. It's a starting place for XYZ coming after it. That's the kind of work that I just adore. I feel like for me, one of the things that I really like about your work is that you're ultimately questioning human behavior. Mm. Like it, it, it's an examination of human behavior in some ways, all those sort of nuances. It's like a deconstruction of our flaws and sometimes feels like the things that we're trying to hide, but you're very good at revealing them. Those weird offbeat moments that Mm. you blink and you miss it kind of, but that say so much about our character and who we are. My biggest fear is that that comes off as cruel. Do you think that ever comes off as cruel? No, it feels like we're laughing together. Yeah. It's because when I look at the pictures, I remember moments where I've been in those. Sure. They're really accessible is what I'm trying to say, essentially. Yeah, I am. I think I have like, I I had a hang up and I've worked through it in therapy, but I've <laughs> had a hang up that what I was doing could be perceived of as mean. I mean, you can't have control after you make an image like how everyone deciphers it, but you can obviously work with intention. And because the candidness showed people that I know and people that I shot and as a self-taught photographer, a lot of your people, a lot of your initial subjects before you're commissioned to do stuff is people around you that you know. And a lot of the, because I like such an active face and an active look a lot of that work can be perceived of can be perceived as just not very flattering and i never wanted it to be on the side of mean cruelty i never i really wanted my gaze because for me that's a very loving gaze and a very alive i like seeing people very alive and present and so i don't know i, I was always i had just like a big hang up that like this is not how people want to be seen and how dare i you know what I mean? That kind of thing. I do know what you mean. And I think it's good to be conscious of that. Yeah. And that's probably something that will be with you for throughout, you know, your whole practice. But yeah. the performance of life, which is kind of what your work is about, it's it's us playing this role in, in the world, but being caught when our characters slip or different parts of our personalities merge or yeah. those kind of in-between moments is what makes it so interesting. And they are awkward and they are uncomfortable. And we all are trying to pretend that we've got our shit together all the time, but we don't. And that's what's so, that's what makes it so accessible, I think. And that's Mm. what makes it come from a more comforting place in some ways. Like we're all going through it together. Yeah, I love that. I mean, the facades of it all is just the facades and the status play and this kind of thing. And also our cultural signifiers we wear on our body and surround ourselves with or it's just like super super fascinating to me you're looking at mainstream culture mainstream people identity politics and photography for me is like it's just not my story to tell i don't think and i'll tell you like a quick anecdote i so i, I put a lot of stuff on instagram i put a lot of stuff on my website I, I try to make as much work as possible and i 
<clears throat> I also usually link it to Facebook and put it on Facebook. And my second grade teacher, who is a woman of color that I adore, real icon to me, um, wrote me and she was like, um, I love the work that you do. It's so great. Your photography is so wonderful. I'm so glad to see that you're doing well, blah, blah, blah. She was like, but I would you ever consider putting more people of color in your images? Because I don't see that much diversity in them. And I was like a little heartbroken because I was like, oh God, okay. Like she has to ask me in the first place is devastating. And then just chatting with her. I mean, I came to this response of just like to explicitly seek out people or communities of color just for the sake of it and shoot it. it feels very disingenuous to me. And like, I'm not, and have sort of never been the kind of photographer that, that would seek out communities and shoot them just for the sake of shooting them. I feel like that's not, those aren't my stories to tell. I'm very conscious of like a quote unquote white gaze. And I, so, I, but then at the same time I was like, Ugh, I don't know. I just, she is right in a way, but I, I, I haven't found a way to approach it where it feels like that, that there's still an authentic way for me to shoot that. Mm-hmm. Or like to, to, I don't even, and also like people of color is like such a, it's such a broad ter- term anyway. Like what, it just would feel real inauthentic to me just to seek out um, diversity just for the sake of having diversity in, in mm-hmm. my shots or portraits or I don't know. For me, what makes the work interesting is that you're poking fun of that white patriarchal society. Love that. That's the bit, like a lot of the businessmen shots. Well, it's sort of the same. There's a similar rule in comedy um, of sort of shooting up and it's like taking comedic shots at those that are just more fortunate than you. I mean, obviously you don't make make fun of or tell jokes about people that are but worse off than you for whatever reason you, you kind of shoot up and that's, and then it's sort of a safety. And it's sort of what I find that, um, you know, Charlie Kwai's work mm-hmm. with his banker series that I think that's why that really worked for mm-hmm. me is because he was really shooting up. He was really taking, um, p- pretty candid and unflattering portraits of, um, bankers, businessmen, you know, around, uh, you know, in the, the banking district, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's a really interesting discussion thinking about your gaze and who you can shoot and what you're allowed to shoot. You know, a lot of people are talking about that at the moment. And there's a lot of discussion about photographers who go to different countries and make work. And is that right? Or, you know, or, they, or should these stories be told by yeah. local photographers? I think it also comes down to a question of stereotype, too, is that like, one, you know, if you are an outsider shooting a community that you're not involved in, like you cannot help but be taking shots that have a stereotype typical gaze to them it's the way that it's the way that your eye can work unless you are anthropologically embedding yourself in communities and spending time with them way before you bring out a camera but if you're just going to go in and and shoot how how can it not be the most obvious thing first i don't care what lighting story you put on it i don't care you know the how um aesthetically beautiful or soft it is it it still is the lens is is concerning for me Mm -hmm. do you think your work makes your audience uncomfortable at times um I've had um, challenging feedback before from uh, people that I've known that have been in them that have just been like, that's not the best shot of me. And I have to be like, let's talk about that. And I do work really hard to kind of investigate and um, kind of work with people and explain and explaining that, yeah, no, this is absolutely not you, that that we are working with character and we are working with a heightened sense of yourself and then trying to work with subjects around me to, to see what they want to bring to the table of the character or the archetype or the um, tax bracket they might represent um, is, is sort of a fun way to approach it because then it, it again feels like collaborative and like theater. I feel like what again makes it interesting is this idea that it that the work occupies a space between sort of perception and reality mm-hmm. for people. It is our reality but our perception of ourselves is 
kind of different or we like to think that we're much more together than we actually are. And I think that tension is just so fascinating. And it's interesting that you say that sometimes it feels like you're collaborating with people as if they are your actors. Yeah. I just love how much of your theatrical background sort of feeds into your mm. actual approach of making images. I think it makes your work very unique. I've never met anybody else who has who thinks about character and storytelling as if they are making a performance. Yeah, it's also so difficult because there are opposite mediums in a lot of ways. Live arts, where you sit down and you watch something for however long that thing might be, and then a still and a still image, we have to get everything in four frame in like four corners is I mean, they're, they're, it's been a real challenge in a lot of ways. I think that's sort of like what is still keeping me in the conversation of it actually is how can I trans, translate and distill something that's so alive into something so still and still keep the same amount of clues, intention, character, and storytelling in it. Um, yeah, and I, I, I want to take the, my work further in the intention of that and like working more with people on, and like building characters and building stories um, is really important to me i think i'm going to try to make a really um a real effort to formalize that in a lot of ways i'm like rereading i kind of always am reading but i'm like rereading a lot of plays right now and rereading a lot of scripts and sort of like going back and going deeper into theater and like looking at you know um great american playwrights and sort of trying to figure out how i can work that into like um imagery when did that all click for you um, has it been a while or is it just a couple of years? Because I know since I've known you, that's kind of your ethos. Yeah, I think a lot of it clicked to me when I moved to London a couple of years ago because I was I'm, I was in Berlin for five years and then making theater, also shooting and also doing photography, but also making theater and working with a group. Um, and I think once I moved to London, it was even though my husband went into an MFA around theater practices, um, moving to London, I was like, OK, I'm not I'm like actually not making theater now, which is. Fine. So, and then I think that it kind of clicked for me that there's like a d- definite link and it was <laughs> a way to keep the theater candle burning to like really make it omnipresent in my work and sort of like what I'm thinking about, what I'm digesting, what I'm talking about. And, and the joy of having a spouse that got his own fan theater and still works in theater is that I see a lot of stuff. So I'm digesting theater on a near constant basis. It's, I think I see more theater than television. I mean, I just, I take it, I take a lot of it in and I'm constantly trying to figure out how to how to yeah could continue to to bring that in the frame and that's really your main reference point for your work or would you say there's anything else kind of cooking around in the I would say I'm on the cusp of theater and film I mean I look at I mean obviously film stills are so exciting because it does have a lot of narrative in it and you can kind of fit a lot of stuff into it um yeah more and more film but I I just think also the another parallel for for me for sure is like um if I'm shooting with a handheld flash and that's a single light source, um, nothing gets me more excited than seeing the glass menagerie or in the West end or something like that. And there's like a a character doing a monologue. Um, and it's like a, it's like a spotlight and it's a single light source and that it, it's similar. There's a similar thing going on in my photography sometimes with the, with that light source and that sense of drama that you can like bring to a still image is like Mm. an everyday moment as well. I think that's the thing is mm. that, flash fused with an everyday moment, which is what's so transformative about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And also, for me, very exciting to understand that, like, if you scratch the surface of reality, just like an iota, that, like, there's actually so much possible in terms of the storytelling. I recently have been doing this thing on Insta Stories that just started, like, a month ago, where if I shoot something, I'll make sure to also 
do an Insta story of it. And it has so articulated for me my practice of seeing like, because it it kind of reminds me in a digital way of being like, this is what the this is what this is what the iPhone camera sees without the flash. And then mm-hmm. and then seeing the work after it has like really articulated that like I I I it's been exciting for me because I was like, I really I can heighten yeah. a lot. So I've just been like now it's given me a little bit of um, gasoline in terms of looking at other uh, really mundane situations and being like, there's something there. One thing I kind of wanted to talk to you about is your discipline, because I think you are exceptionally disciplined. You work really hard. You're shooting all the time. I think I've never seen you without your camera. Mm. And you have a real focus in what you're doing. And you're you're completely open about it's always a work in progress. You're always pushing for more, but you're always, always working. Well, I could say a couple things about this. So the first is when I started shooting. Oh, so when I so I started shooting in Chicago, and then we moved to Berlin for five years, and I had this like real bullshit job for this. Um, uh, it was like a startup, like a flash sale startup, because I needed the money. So I was doing uh, this job. I, I so it was a quite intense job. And then when I left it, I was felt a little bit lost because I kind of haven't, I kind of took a side job and sort of wasn't focusing on my photography and my, um, then boyfriend now husband again was like, okay, right. Um, you, how about this? You take my email, take like a couple of our other friends emails and, um, send us all a photo a day. And it was, it was like, it was called photo daily. And I was like, great. And that was in 2013. So I had like 10 friends that I would email a photo a day to. I did it every day. Um, it doesn't matter what it was of. There were a lot of those shots down. If you looked at them, you would be like, again, <laughs> um, who? what is this? But um, it's it gave me a daily practice and it gave me a discipline that sort of like made a lot of sense for me. And um, it, again, just required that I sort of have my camera on me at all times, which I just got used to and I still do and I still have it. Um, there was like a real street photography emergence. Uh, and... Um, so that's the work that I started looking at and digesting a lot of, actually. Like, shout out to Michelle Groskopf, aka she used to be Daily Street, who is the finest street photographer mm-hmm. in the game. She is unbelievable. She's great. Well, just the amount of work that she that she um releases and just she's working on a daily basis on the street. And that was just so exciting for me to see that level of character and come through in um street photography. I quickly found out I don't have the guts balls guts to um shoot strangers in that way i just it just it doesn't fit with my personality somehow have you had awkward moments when you've shot people that have put you off or is it general like a nerve no i it just it just i I haven't even had like a moment that i can think of that's been like a warning no i just like it just like doesn't it's too much it's too much and i've seen the i've hung out with michelle and i've seen the way she works and it is so beautiful and so inspiring. She just goes up and takes. She just goes up and takes, takes, takes. And then she usually engages them with a conversation afterwards. And like, people don't care. And that, that, it was a big lesson for me to learn that like, look at, I mean, just watching her do it, being like, people really don't care. I mean, she also has the occasional, um, the occasional time where, pe- where people will freak out at mm-hmm. her. And she says that it really curbs her for a while. But I don't know. I, I think the, to, the point I'm trying to make is like, I took a lot of, that street photographer discipline and ethos to heart, even though I'm not explicitly shooting street photography, it's that pace that is interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And that um, constantly being on the hunt, that's interesting to me. And 
And I've had a couple instances in my life that I can literally think of, like two or three instances of a shot I've missed when I did not have my camera. And I can still see that shot in my mind. I'm still pissed off. That I didn't have my It's one of my favorite, me. favorite conversations ever. I uh, feel like all photographers have those moments. I um, also have just run into issues though, like because I'm so inspired by the things around me that are happenstance, the things that I find, the things that I seek, the things that I seek out and I'm curious about. I have had a little bit of issues it, um, translating that to staging things mm-hmm. and crafting things and building them from the ground up, which is weird because as a filmmaker, you do, or as a film, as a theater maker, you do that constantly. But I like, th- I have like a, th- a translation block about mm. being able to figure that out. Well, it's that level of reality. It's hard. It's never as good is mm. what I think. Yeah. I've, it's never as good as it, it's going to be if you find it. I think that's going to be your life's work trying to work on that. I think tension. that's right. Yeah. But that's quite exciting. It's a good challenge. Yeah, it is. It does speak to all the skills that you've learned over the years, which is interesting. I'm just really committed to like getting that authenticity right. It's mm. so important to me. Authenticity is everything. And like if it's if it's not going to show up in a still life that I work with a set designer in a studio, like I can't like have a hard time with that. Mm. Mm. I think you've got to trust your instincts with stuff like that as well. Yeah, I think, I think so. there's so much pressure to be somebody you're not or people try and shape you in a way and you know obviously we've all got a bit of shape shifting we all need to pay the bills but you still need to keep your integrity and your Mm. authenticity I think that's right just going back a little bit to the this idea of shooting up one of the things I wanted just to talk about is how I kind of love the way you break down class and privilege in your work Mm. and just offering this new sort of perspective on class and glamour and success I think is really interesting and feels really refreshing Mm. and one of the still one of my favorite shoots of yours is the was it the Maserati factory yes yeah you shot for port yeah I mean it's monstrous it's those pictures are so funny yeah you have never seen such luxurious cars shot in that way (laughs) and I just find it hysterical yeah they just keep on giving that was a dream job because I couldn't have given two fucks can I curse can I curse? I had, did not give two F words about luxury cars. I don't care. So it was actually such a dream for me to be in there because I was able to disengage on a fan level um, and just kind of really focus on what was interesting to me. I think it was a bold commission as well. It was such a joy to do. And also to like, because of releases, <laughs> I sort of had the challenge of anonymizing the factory workers in that, the Italian factory workers in the Maserati factory. It's, it was sort of, I sort of had to do that. Um, and then I just realized dramaturgically that actually really works. Mm-hmm. Um, just like, yeah, seeing sort of like nameless hands, faces and bodies and torsos, like putting together these like luxury car. I mean, it, it sort of is the narrative of how those cars get built anyway, mm-hmm. in terms of a class perspective, like you'll never know how many hands actually like went into making that. And mm-hmm. so I was actually happy that that kind of fed back into the narrative. Yeah. That's another conceptual layer, doesn't it? Yeah. And also just like being able to light up that entire factory with like a massive flash was like, so much fun because there are so many details in that shots that you can kind of pick up on. There is so much detail in your work that I think you can definitely get a first read on it and have a visceral reaction, but then not quite see a lot of those layers. And it's work that you can keep coming back to because there's so there's so much there and it keeps giving you more and more. And it's these it's kind of these cues, it's these observations and these little moments of commentary that you're giving or you're offering up as a discussion point Mm. and that's what makes it so rich and that's one of the reasons why I also really love the clavicle studies because I think they kind of as you said before they're focusing on one part of the body but they're revealing so much about character the imagination of it yeah I mean you can craft I can anyway my imagination 
and even I shot the people and I kind of, I try to kind of like block that out because it's more fun for me to look at the shots and be like, who is this person? What is their status within this world? Like I, I've done it at a couple different places. One of the places that I really in particular love doing it was at Freeze because it it's such an ecosystem of status and like understanding that a little bit and like knowing a little bit about art fairs. Um, I just love being able to kind of place people per their clavicle studies on where they fit on that spectrum because you can very much tell who's an artist, who's a gallerist, who's a dealer, um, who's a, a, a gallery assistant. Like you can, you can tell. I don't know. Also, yeah, just we, it, it, that got born out of, well, I did it once accidentally when I was shooting an event in Berlin. Like I focused on somebody's thing and I was like, oh, love that. And then I think the first time I did it was with um, another, with with Maisie Skidmore uh, and Holly Hay, who I think was there. But they they wanted to do like a, a fashion take on Freeze. And I was like, I am not the photographer that's going to do like full body against a brick wall fashion, street fashion shots because... Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, it's not yeah, your vibe. No. Uh, so I pitched that to them and they were like, yeah, do it. And then I started, to, and then I'm like, this is a 40 year project. Mm-hmm. Like I want to like continue to be sent to events. <laughs> <laughs> I want to continue to be, shout out to everyone, continue to be sent to events to shoot them just this way because it's, it's it really, I just love it. Yeah. Well, again, it feels like it ties into the, to the sort of your training and it's all about body language and yeah. how we communicate in those subtle gestures and character and layers and yeah. costume. It's everything almost in one frame, which yeah, is love, really love, 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 really love, love. awesome. And then also usually I don't like dealing with like event lighting, like cause it's, it can be like very yellow or halogen kind of bullshit. So I really rely on just my flash, which again, to go back to theater makes it that single light source. Mm-hmm. So there's something very like spotlit about this, this person's, um, clavicle that's just so lovely you love flash i do i think you love flash more than anybody i've ever met i do i mean i just i do well it's all about what your magical realism term that's right can you unpack that a little bit yeah um it's just the idea that we can yeah heighten we can heighten the storytelling and make it a little more like so i think one of the reasons i really started to fall in love with flash because when i was in berlin i was just like smoking a ton of weed cool and there is a real magicness about when you're stoned and shoot with flash to, that really set the stage and gave me a platform for continuing that into my career now that I'm not such a stoner. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's just a way to heighten the ordinary that I'm super obsessed with. And also it's a way, it accomplishes so many things at once. It's also a way to um, tighten up your aperture so that you can see all the details and that your depth of field becomes smaller and you can kind of you can kind of clock a lot more details. Everything's in focus, which is important if you are a detective looking at images like i am with my work and with a lot of other people's work if i'm if you're really reading the image for the details that everything is in focus just gives you more to play with in your imagination so it's super important to me um and again just heightening it just heightening the 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 magicalness of it is so important and it's a big part of your authorship which i know is a subject we talk about all the time true and it's something that i think it's just more and more important now, now that the photography marketplace is more saturated than ever before. There is so much competition out there. Mm. So why is authorship so important to you? Kind of what does it mean to you? I think photographers or image makers with work who I would consider to have a really deep level of authorship are the people who have paid attention to themselves enough. Um, We all have within us the capability to make work that is very specific to our 
value systems, our upbringing, our visual references, our um, current desires, our current um, interests and desires. And if you really pay attention to yourself a lot, you will make work that looks like nobody else's. That looks like nobody else's. So deep authorship to me is a sign that somebody has their shit together in that way. Um, but it's important to me also because, well, it's important. So to say that it's first, first and foremost important to me because I think it's, uh, it's a level of knowing myself, which I have worked for. And, um, I don't understand how people can make work that just, that just like is semi anonymous in that way. I just, I don't. It could be mistaken for somebody else's. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just the people that really excite me and the people that I look at constantly are are people whose works I know right away are in their, in their visual vocabulary. I just think we can't. And as you said, the marketplace is so saturated too, that it's like, I don't know how anybody can afford to not financially afford, but like also artistically afford to make work that is um, following, following visual trends or, um, yeah, just just doesn't have like a, a certain level of cohesion and authorship to to their work. I wonder if you've got a particularly unique take on this because you are self-taught, because a lot of UK education around photography or if you're studying fine art or whatever, a lot of our arts education is about copying the greats. That's how we learn. We look at their work and then we copy it. Mm. And that's so much of what our education system is built on. Mm. Even when you're in university, it's a lot about finding that one artist or a group of artists that inform your work so closely. To really get you off. Yeah. It's less about looking in. It's mm. less about what have you got? What's there? Let's unpack this, which I feel like does a real disservice to students and and really sets themselves sets themselves up for a really challenging time when they just graduate because they don't really know who they are. The parallels run so deep with theater training, though, because I have to tell you, in theater school, the whole fucking deal is um, what what's your type. What type are you going to play when you get out of school? Are you an ingenue? Are you going to hit your strides in your 40s when you can play more of a matriarch or a patriarch? Are you a leading man? Da, 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 da. Like what, what's your type and what are the roles that you are, are what are the, the kind of roles that you can occupy? And a lot of theater and conservatory training, you come out sort of knowing what your type is and you, you know, tailor your headshot per that type and you get sent hopefully in auditions and you will, you can literally build a career on that type. A lot of programs and theater programs don't, come out and say hey make your own work like make your own write your own thing write your own play perform your own play like tell your story or tell someone else's story or like construct your own script like it's it's a lot of theater programs don't actually do that but yeah um but being self-taught uh it's been challenging in a lot of ways actually because i also walk blindly into things that that people will be like that that looks like a lot that really looks like somebody else's work and I'm like who who's <laughs> and then I like have to like and then it gives me sort of education because then I'm like oh this photographer I'm like oh yeah I mean I definitely see the resemblance there and I also just like adore and then I'll devour everything that they've done so in that way it's a nice it's a nice way to kind of um, keep myself keep myself still learning about people and I never I've never wanted to like even when I started like really working and taking commissions. Like I was at a point where um, my husband was like, maybe you should go back to school for, for photography. Maybe you should like learn something. <laughs> and there's still so much like magic that I wanted to unpack and find on my own that I was like, I don't, I don't know. It's such a, it's such a motivator for me to be like. But that's exactly it. That's what I feel like students are missing now because they are basically encouraged to be somebody else. They don't get that time to unpick and test and experiment and fail right. at themselves. Right. And that's so important. I feel like 
that can take years. Yeah. There's people who take years before they get to that stage where they're like, yeah, okay, this is my thing. This is what I'm really excited about. Mm. And it's just, I feel like that time's so precious. It's such a shame that we don't. I also have to say that time for me, shout out to Berlin, because that time for me was um, being there for five years. Berlin was so cheap that I didn't really have to have that many side hustles or any, or sometimes any side hustle that I could sort of like make it work and have and afford myself so much time. Also, I like never quite learned the language. So I was like really walking around the street processing a lot visually in terms of like reading signs and not being able to necessarily like understand them or yeah, just taking the time for it. Um, But anyway, yeah, that it gave me an education in that way. It gave me time, 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 time to develop and deepen into what I, what I wanted to do. You're listening to The Messy Truth, conversations on photography. And how do you feel about the comparison factor? Obviously, we talk a lot about how a lot of people who first read your work make a reference to Martin Parr. Then I saw his work and I was like, oh, I get it. I um, I think what Martin Parr and I share in particular is a sense of the uncanny and like getting that. He, he also walks that cusp of like reality like it, like it's heightened reality. He also knows how to heighten reality in a, in a way that he has like a brilliant eye for. So I think we share that mo- mostly. But yeah, it's a comparison that my agents were like, we hear it all the time. Your website is the ultimate expression of so many aspects of your personality mm. and your work. And the same, even down to your briefs or your pitch briefs. I mean, they're so you immediately, as soon as you receive one of those, you're... you're entering this completely different alternative reality. Yeah. And I feel like that level of consistency takes a lot of discipline as well. Yeah. I mean, I really just try to follow my instincts as much as possible on those things. Like what, what makes me giggle? What gets me off? Like what, yeah. What, what kind of, what kind of like levity would I want to see in it? Cause pitch, pitch PDFs in particular, like pitch briefs can be so serious, like take themselves so seriously. And I just don't have, to, I just don't, communicate in that way as you know knowing me i don't communicate that way on a personal level with people so it would be strange for me to all of a sudden have like a very um austere pdf or something astute to make that observation Mm. i think again i think there's just so much fear in the industry of people worrying about having to live up to a certain standard and having to go by the codes of the industry rather than just following who they are and keeping that sort of consistency with their own authorship or authenticity well, it's starting to pay off for me just to be like stubborn mm-hmm. aesthetically um, and not sort of try to tailor my work to what's been. But I, I can tell you, I think I can say this. It's been a frustration for my agents because um, they try to make work work for me and to like kind of be a little bit more stubborn about the kinds of things that I shoot and won't shoot and the, the ways like I can't stand. a What do you guys call it? Colorama. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't stand them. Like, I just can't look at them. I don't like the way they feel at all. And like, it just, it's been a, it's been a little bit of a challenge with them trying to like figure out a way to make me work for an existing marketplace and still maintain like a sense of authorship and a a sense of brand consistency and genuinely what excites me about it too. Because I guess your work is kind of split between art, editorial, and then commercial. Yeah. But it's less on the commercial. It's like, it's really like, I would say like, I would even say in, in my portfolio, like, 90% 90% of that in there is personal work. Mm-hmm. It's polished personal work. It looks like it has a tie to commercialism, but it's not commissioned stuff. Do you find the commercial side of things frustrating? I 
No, I mean, frustrating in that, like, it'd be nice to have more commercial jobs, but on what terms? Like, I, I just can't, as a self-taught person who really follows my aesthetic heart, I actually, like, can't shift that much. Like, I don't have it in me. Like, even if somebody wanted me to shoot in the style of XYZ or, like, if, if there's a brief that, like, really doesn't match to me, I actually feel like as a self-taught person, I can't do that. Like, so I don't feel like I have any any other option but then but then to really do what I love and what is specific to my eye. But, yeah, is it – the commercial stuff's frustrating to me because, oh, I mean, it's it's commercial stuff. I mean, what do you – I mean, it's built into – the whole model, it's built into it that it needs to be um, a very specific look and way. I think it's really exciting, though, that there are a new wave of photographers who think similarly to you in yeah. that they don't want to compromise. They want to keep that integrity with what they're doing. And I think, you know, 20 years ago, that's not how photographers were. It was very much be as flexible as possible. You can shoot all these different things. You don't necessarily have a particular voice. Hmm. You're many things. That is one of the positive outcomes of the saturation factor. Right. I think people are being more specific. And in terms of being a commissioner, that just gives you loads more options. Yeah. And you know then when you book somebody, you're going to get that pure point of view. Well, it's funny. There's things that I obviously have no problem in terms of a commercial side compromising on. Like, obviously, when you're shooting product, the product needs to be the star of the shot. I have no problem with that, with those kinds of compromises or even the deliverables. Like, whatever, be, however you want it, I, I'll shoot it and you can have it that way. But I think it's stuff really with, like, um, authorship to me. And, you know, I fo- I've fallen into fashion traps before where it's like they just wanted it to be like a model in a semi-interesting location and for me to just like put my lighting story on it which for me and especially if you're going to work for fashion not be paid that much for me you need to like if that's not enough i'm like okay but who but, but if you've if you decide that you wanted to work with me because my vibe trans can f- translate to fashion it's more than a lighting story the vibe is the, in, the character and the vibe is those in-between moments and the vibe is like you know even if it's a gorgeous model like i'm gonna i'm gonna aim for those in-between moments those alive moments it's not gonna be like a, it, may, it might not be that model's best model face you know but that's an interesting point in terms of you know in how the industry works now especially in advertising but editorial as well is so quick there's no time. Commissioners right. have hardly any time right. and are stretched so thin with so many different deliverables. That I think it's kind of interesting that it almost falls back on the creative, the photographer, the artist, the filmmaker to take their take that collaboration on that journey and ensure right. that the person they're working with gets all these nuances to the work. Obviously, you can't put it all on somebody, but some some kind of way of communicating these are the three core things that are part of my practice and that needs to be involved yeah it's it's a difficult conversation but i think it's becoming more and more important but now i know but now i also know especially when it comes to fashion that i can tell right away if those values are there and if the if the person that's commissioning is willing to go on that journey with me because if they're not i don't i mean pay me pay me more do you feel comfortable turning down work if it's not right is it something that you do yeah because the whole process will be a nightmare I've, I've again just like worked fashion stuff where it's like it became clear that like the vibe that they wanted was not the vibe that I care about or the vibe that I think is interesting or the vibe that I and yeah it's just um and then it just becomes a it just becomes a nightmare in post-production too and yeah so you just don't start off on the same page so it's never right end so well. now I know when when something does come through or becomes a, to make sure that we're on the same page from the get-go do I feel comfortable turning down work never 
No, I, it's a nightmare. It's a living nightmare to turn down work. But I think it's liberating at the same time. It's liberating to try to, to be honest about who you are and what you're about and have that yeah. Yeah. sort of backbone. I do think it's really important. I should just say, though, it's served me well to this point. But like, catch me next month when I'm like, I'll do anything. <laughs> I need to pay my bills. <laughs> yeah. yeah, seriously. No, seriously. So let's talk a little bit about some of your projects. And I wanted to start by talking about Brothers and Others yeah. and how that started. So Brothers and Others um, was a project that is an ongoing project. Uh, my husband's family comes from a very different class than my family does. Well, very different. I wouldn't say very different, but they come from a different class. And they um, all vacation together every year in upstate Michigan in this gorgeous house that has been in their family for like 50-some uh, years. And they are um, upper middle class, white Chicagoans. They... I think my husband is so gorgeous and all of his brothers look like him. So I think that whole family is so good looking. Like I genuinely enjoy shooting <laughs> them just from the perspective of they're, they're gorgeous. I've now known them for a decade. So to see them age is really, really, really interesting to me. I am, um, I am the second oldest of five and he's the youngest of four. So in a way they're also older siblings to me and being able to kind of see them physically change over the years. Now knowing them from like their mid twenties to their mid thirties, is for someone who clocks visual stuff is really fascinating to me. And also it took me so long to like get their culture in upstate Michigan, like to get this like country club, um, tennis, boating um, life. It, like visually it's fascinating to me because the costumes that they wear, and I say costumes because it, there is a level of character that they already bring to this vacation time. Um is just so great. It's so rich and beautiful. And so I started learning by shooting around them because I just lived around them. And then when it, when I got a little after or at the end of Berlin and sort of in the beginning of living in London, when I was just getting more professional and sort of really polishing what it is that excites me, I just, I just kept on shooting them more and more. Kind of a study of family and a kind of a study of class at the same time and yes. how these two things interweave. Yeah. And you can, because the images are so saturated with props and costumes to use theater language, like there's so much storytelling there and you can t tell so much more intention and to see the relationships between them, like, and again, it's been like when you put very um, complex dynamics in a four frame shot, that may or may not be true again, like that. So to like, literally like shot to shot when I'm editing, like realize that like this tells this story of brothers, this shot tells this story of brothers has been a, another tool of narrative that I've like really loved. Like whether or not that's true, it doesn't matter. And like, I think that's one of the conversations that I've sort of like um, had, had to go back and have with them because I've had people be like, well, I look mad at that person in that shot. And I'm like, well, were you in there? They're like, no. And I'm like, okay, but isn't that fun? <laughs> That like that like these two figures in the shot have that sort of tension in between mm -hmm. them, and then from there they were sort of able to be like, they're able to be more in the conversation of like let's play a little more. Also, they they're just broken in, quote unquote, broken in in terms of a lot of Michael's family doesn't um, really doesn't change their behavior when I bring my camera out, which mm -hmm. is I understand a very fine line, one that I'm very grateful for, and one that. Um, doesn't sort of need constant maintenance and like kind of re really treading that line lightly because they are, because they are collaborating with me so much. 
it, it's a really delicate balance. But anyway, it's very fruitful and I, it's rich, very rich work to me. And I hope to again, make this like another like 30 or 40 year project. There's something in it as well. When you look at the dynamics between the adults and the kids and some of those moments with Love the that. kids just feel like moments you experience as an adult, just Love. the absolute frustration. But likewise, you see moments between the adults when they're letting loose that is quite childlike. And I love that, that tension. Yeah. I think my best shots, you can see the teaching of demeanor and you can see how kids who are a little bit more wild um, sort of get conditioned. And I say that in a really loving way because I know that word condition can have negative connotations, but they get sort of conditioned into the life up there is like, to put to be able to put that in four frames is really exciting for me. Like those, like like if because you can because obviously con- conditioning or like just learning how to be in a family can take years and be so complex in so many ways. So to like isolate it into specific moments is so gorgeous for me. And yeah, I, th- I think really for them too. This is going to be a long term project for you, right? Yeah. You're going to keep going and going. Oh yeah, because those now that those kids are starting to physically change, oh, I'm in heaven. That, they, that you can, because you, you, a four-year-old, to see somebody at four and then see somebody at six, and like, oh, I just, I love looking at the faces, understanding the faces, knowing their mother and father enough to know who, who they're serving me. <laughs> Are you serving your dad or your mom in this shot? Like, is so complex and wonderful for me. And incredibly voyeuristic. Incredibly visually voyeuristic as well. Well, that's a big part of your world as well. Yeah. You are definitely like a master observationalist. It's all about all those details. Mm. And how you recently shot your own family, yeah. which I know you avoided for quite a long time. It took a while. Why, why was that? With Michael's family, I was immediately, I'm an outsider anyway, just not obviously being outside of the family and marrying into it. So I was able to shoot and I, I guess not really have them care. Or, yeah, I don't know. I was able to just like instantly be an outsider with my camera, but with my family, um, it, as to say Michael's family, I'm a little bit more on the fringes. It's a large family. There's there's four kids and um, stepsisters and like, anyway, and kids around. So I was able to kind of be on the fringe, but in my family, I'm very much a central member of it. Um, and very much like implicated in my, a lot of my family dynamics. So the minute I bring out my camera with my family, the whole room changes, like, and then you can tell. So then I'm not interested because it's not, there's no authenticity in the shots. Like everyone just stiffens up. So I think when I started shooting one of the more successful projects I did with my family was when my whole family vacationed in Morocco and thank God, because there was so much external stimuli going on in such a busy, ancient, hustling, misogynistic and homophobic culture that I was able to shoot them from an outside way where they didn't see me. And then by proxy of that, they just sort of got comfortable and now they're, now they're good. And how did it feel for you and both for them? Um, a relief. I think I'm a little, I think I'm a little harsher when I'm editing. I think I'm a little harsher with the narrative of my family because, um, I feel just knowing them that I can take more risks in the stories that I'm trying to tell with him. I think I'll, I think we'll see more of that. Like if Michael's family is like, oh, I didn't, if people are like, I didn't love the shot. I'm gutted. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like very torn up because it's, it's been such a sensitive, delicate balance. Yeah. But if any of my siblings were like, I didn't like that shot. I'd be like, shut up. <laughs> Like I would, so I think I'll be able to take a little more risks with them. Yeah. And it just, I just was stayed with my brother in Richmond for a couple of days and his two kids. And that for me was also very, very, very fruitful work because they just kind of got relaxed. Like something happened and they just sort of like my brother in particular, just like he just really relaxed up in the shots. And you could tell, I mean, there's a, there's a real intimacy and nuance there now. So I'm, I'm really happy about that. 
One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, a little bit going back to the Martin Parr factor, is these labels that they put, that the industry as a whole, we all kind of do it, put it put on sort of emerging talent. Um, and this idea that people want to put you in a box mm-hmm. as soon as you're out there, as soon as they see any pictures from you. And how do you feel that helps your development or hinders your development as a photographer? Hmm. I don't know if I've been like put in a box yet, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. You're like, still I don't, running free? I think so. I don't think like, yeah, I mean, the, when you pitch as much as I do, the beauty in that is you do what works for you and what you're interested in. If if the pitch doesn't get picked up, the pitch doesn't get picked up. But um, I also do, because I do portraits, because I do still life, because I do like reportage based experience stuff. And now starting to do a little bit more fashion and a little bit more commercial. Yeah, I don't feel that I've necessarily been put in a box, which is ideal, mm-hmm. which I've, I'm very excited about. Let's just rewind a little bit and talk about the FT commission, because mm-hmm. that was a huge thing that you just recently shot. Yeah. So you were commissioned to shoot the entire issue for FT magazine, and it was all on veganism. Right, the food issue, <laughs> veganism. So how did it go? Um, I think it went really, really well. They It was an ideal commission in a lot of ways, because... They wanted me to produce a ton of content, which I like doing. I like, I actively like being edited because it makes me feel safe <laughs> that I'm like, okay, did you say you wanted six pictures? I'm going to make 12, take the six best, you know, because that way you can't fail. But um, it was a dream because they, Emma Bowkett gave me a ring and she was like, actually, this is kind of a, a this is a better way to tell the story because there's a lesson in here. Um, Emma Bowkett emailed me and she was like, I hope I can talk about this. I think it's fine. She was like, do you want to go to a restaurant and shoot um, like this cocktail story? Apparently there's this restaurant and they like, it's like a visual experience as well. And they like match the vibe of the video installations to the cocktail, whatever. She's like, do you, she was like, do you do film? And I was like, uh, and we talked about this. Cause mm-hmm. I was like, Jem, <laughs> do, do I, I do, do film? film? <laughs> <laughs> and you were like, just do it. And I was like, and I, it, it literally struck panic in my heart. I think as a self-taught person, that's like, it, and I was just like, I, and I knew the vibe that they were going for. And I had to be like, thank you so much for thinking of me, but I don't do film. And this pains me. Like we talked about before, I hate to turn down work. So I was like, I just don't think I'm the right creator for this job. And that was like on a Friday and it killed me. And I even, and like, I didn't even tell my husband cause I was like, he's gonna be pissed that I turned down a job. Um, so then she calls me on Monday. She just rings me up and I'm like, is she going to? and try to talk me into the film thing because I was like, oh God, now I'm going to have to say no to her face or to, to, yeah. her, to her voice. IRL. And she was talking, talking, talking. She was like, um, so, oh yeah, the film, the cocktail thing, we got somebody to illustrate that. Don't worry about it. She's like, so for the vegan issue, we have like a 2,400 piece on the, on the veganism and then we have a couple 800 word pieces. We have the recipes at the back. We have the cover. She's like, do you want to, we want you to do all of it. And I was like, oh, I truly, honestly, really touched and flattered like really the vote of confidence was everything to, to me but also the lesson being like i thought they were never gonna fucking ring me again after i turned down the film thing and like to beat and to like kind of sit back in myself and like kind of be more like no this is what i do like i think that it actually sort of like paid off but they worked in an ideal way they sent me the copy of the pieces and they were like, come back, come back at us with ideas. Cash me outside with ideas. And I was like, yeah, perfect way of working for me. I was like, this is a dream. So then I worked with um, Josh Lustig, who's the amazing photo editor, and Mark Leeds, who was the 
um, uh, art director. And we just went back and forth with ideas and, and tighten them down, tighten them down, tighten them down. A lot of the stuff I worked with, I already knew worked well in my visual vocabulary. I've been experimenting with shooting food for a while. So I, I knew the kind of candid reportage vibe I wanted to put even on something that was quote unquote set designed. Um, and we just tightened up the work, tightened up the work, tightened up the work. And it, I was just, was like, this is ideal. It was so refreshing for me to be able to do food and see food in that way. I think that's one of the most exciting things having known you now for kind of a year is watching your style evolve and watching you um, start to shoot and work in different sort of verticals because mm. you were very much kind of fashion splash of documentary sort of the personal stuff when I first met you and now definitely food has become a much bigger element travels mm. becoming a bigger element mm. there's just so much evolving and I think a lot of photographers worry about being boxed like they need to be a car photographer they need to be a food photographer they need to be this and what is so exciting about having a specific aesthetic is that over time you can figure out how you apply that to a whole world of things yeah you know the possibilities are endless True. in terms of career evolution but I don't think people are encouraged to do that I think people are encouraged to be boxed or make themselves I think also in a commercial sense, that's absolutely accurate. And I think that's what's so exciting. All these things are happening organically, which yeah. is really great because it means then you're bringing your true self to the subject of food, travel, whatever. Yeah. There are just also like, not genius because they're commissioning me, they're genius in their own right, but like really genius commissioners. Like a really good commission and a really good editor that commissions me will sort of understand how how I can work in that. And like some of my, some of what I think are my most successful commissions are the ones that have been the most surprising. I think about um, port with the Maserati factory being one of them. I also, I also honestly think of the FT weekend food thing. Like, I don't think necessarily I'd be the first person that they thought of, but I mean, to such great effect, I was so honored, truly, truly honored to be given the opportunity to do that. I think that's an interesting thing to talk about as well, because you make a lot of effort to grow your network, get to know people in the industry. Obviously, yeah. you moved here from a different country, so you were starting from scratch, essentially. Really but you're still putting in as much effort today as you did the moment you landed here. Yeah. And I think that also speaks for a it's, lot. It's been a real struggle when I've been happy to undertake, just like you just said, moving from Berlin, not knowing a damn fool here and having to like really work it from the bottom up. Um has been fun. I feel like a detective and figuring out who's commissioning what for what publication. Sometimes that's like not clear information and also just like getting emails. And I mean, I'm, I'm constantly, um, wanting to meet people because I, I love talking to people too, as you know. Well, I, as, as I always say to you, I think there's nothing, there's no one who can sell work like the photographer. If the photographer yeah, can true. really speak to their work and bring that passion and, and energy that is in that frame, then you know, over time you will get a commission at some point from yeah. that person. It's so important to be able to talk about your work. And I think it's really overlooked. It's also sharpening for me. Sometimes I'll like literally be in a meeting and say something and be like, that is a value of mine. It's discovery. Yeah. That's what's so I'm great. Like, oh, uh, okay. Well, that, like I try to cool it. Like, like uh, this isn't the first time I've thought this, but like, I'll be like. I think it's the same with public speaking. I think a lot of photographers, you know, being behind a camera is essentially a behind the scenes moment. Like you're yeah. not that interested in being in the limelight. Lots yeah. of photographers feel very uncomfortable in that space, but actually the process of talking about your work, whether that's in a talk or one-on-one -on -one with a client is actually a game changer True. in terms of self-discovery. Yeah, I, I think you learn so much from doing talks and all of those bits and pieces. Yeah. It's huge.
And I also just love meeting people and editors and seeing what they're excited about and talking to them about like what their references are and then being like, yeah, I can actually see that in your work. I can see that in the kind of work you commission. It like has been so um, like w- weirdly comforting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. So you've had an insanely busy year this year. I feel like you've shot a huge amount, but you've had a lot of interesting moments. You shot the Royal Wedding for the New York Times. Oh my God, that's so much fun. You spent 48 hours with Gigi Hadid. Which was a dream. <laughs> so what's been the highlight? Oh God. Um, I mean, the Royal Wedding Day was a dream come true because I was shooting two jobs in one day and I just loved being an outsider in that British culture explosion. At the going to the wedding, I was like, "Oh fuck it, it's just a like, who cares about this?" Um, cut to, I'm fully crying. I'm 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 audibly weeping when Your they're when they're kissing. Was out of control. I, I know. I well, I I all of a sudden it hit me. So when they called when um th- when Eve Lyons at New York Times was like, "Hey, do you do you want to go shoot this photo essay?" Um, which is music to my ears because it's just a because then it can be just whatever you want to do instead of like finding a specific angle. Um, she was like, do you want to do this photo essay? I was like, yes. And then she told me that Katie Weaver was writing the words, who I am fully obsessed with. And I have been following her writing for a really long time. Um, I just thought it was such a really good match. I knew, I knew, I, I mean, if look at the images for that, sure. But also read the text because the way they, they go hand in hand together was a, a, an absolute highlight for me. That it was like, it was one of the first times where I was like, oh, the images can like really be informed by the text and vice versa. And I met her before, so I knew her vibe and I, I just know her work. So to kind of be tailoring that through like a Katie Weaver lens, like to, to know that like, this is how she writes about it. And so this is how she must see it. So therefore try to make it so that I kind of see it that way was um, a real learning experience and a really highlight because I thought the images came out really well. I was very happy with them. And what a gift to have that collaboration. I mean, just again, speaking to the fact there's no time anymore or we don't yeah. make, we don't choose to make the time. Yeah. I feel like that is so powerful, that opportunity to meet with the writer, to get each other's vibe, to kind of collaborate from yeah. a distance. Yeah. That's incredible. And then the Gigi thing, also for the New York Times, was so great. Because I'm such a voyeur and I'm so fucking nosy, like to be hanging out with Gigi Hadid for like that long and like be following her and like seeing her like moment to moment and seeing her persona change. Like when she's quote unquote backstage or quote unquote on like. You were following her through Fashion Week, right? Uh, through a, a couple days when she was here during the Tommy Hilfiger collaboration. So she did, she's now not doing it anymore, but she did a Tommy Hilfiger collaboration. It was like Gigi times Tommy. And she was very much working. I mean, she's very like, she's an influencer she's a working influencer. Like she hand her phone. She's doing that social. Like she is, and she was so nice. She was shockingly nice. <laughs> um, but also just to like be hanging around and seeing her day to day was just like a dream come true. I just loved getting again, similar to the time question, getting that level of in-depthness I think was like so key. So what's one piece of advice you'd give to a photographer starting out? Oh, um, yeah, I think a lot of it is really be careful what you ingest. Be careful what you look at, because subconsciously or consciously, it is going to come through what you shoot. And you need to be really careful about the work that you that you there are photographers who I love that I have had to stop following on Instagram because the level of infatuation I have with them. I'm like, this is this is about to dilute, not dilute, um, but this is about to inform my work in a way that I don't want to. Like I'm very, I'm, I'm very careful. 
That's a huge one. Be careful what you look at and what you ingest. There's a responsibility there for sure, which is more important now than ever based on how many different ways we consume visual culture. Right. It's just endless. The fact that the last thing and the first thing people do before they go to bed is often like scroll through Instagram or something. I mean, so dangerous. It's it's so dangerous. Yeah, it's so dangerous. And as a commissioner, that's something that I come up with a lot. And the frustration I see, you know, when I'm looking at creative blogs, looking for new talent, I just see those those reference points are so visible. Yeah, and it and I think when you're younger and you are less informed, you might not fully understand how much you have been inspired by something, and it's really scary because it's career suicide. Yeah, it really is. It's dangerous. Well, on that too, it's sort of the same advice, but um, it's the twin to the advice, but it's like, yeah, also just about authorship. I mean, take that time, get as specific as possible with what you do and what your eye can do that nobody else does is like super, super, super important. Like, and it pays off in dividends. I mean, not financially, but artistically again, like it, it shows when you can really, really tighten, tighten, tighten up on what it is you love. I think about somebody like Alice Mann. Like um, in South Africa, mm-hmm. she's really, really, really tightened up into that, into like what her viewpoint is with that. And it really pays off. And the work has so, so much authorship. It sticks out. And again, with the right editor, it's very commissionable. You can see how that like really works out. Yeah. And also, uh, I was going to say something about like constantly, I I update people constantly. And that's been like. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. So mm-hmm. what is your marketing strategy every three months i send out a pdf to every contact i know um with my work from the past three months and a a very short email not don't go go into it but i'll usually do a very short email sometimes with links if i've had enough web stuff i'll link it if not usually just attach the pdf just saying this is what i've been up to here you are and how successful (laughs) is that for you um great i usually I usually always hear back from, I mean, I hear back from a good amount of people, just even like a thanks. And I just think it's good to keep it in their minds because Instagram's great. A lot of people don't, aren't consuming Instagram on a daily basis. They don't, they don't see your new work that way. So if you have the work email, put it in a Google doc, do that shit every three months and send it out. That's a big marketing strategy for me. Um, And then also knowing who you can pitch to and what their publications are looking for. And tailoring your pitches per them is, I would say it's a marketing strategy, but it's definitely a working strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And constantly being on the look for like how you can cover something in your unique ways. Mm-hmm. Super important. Uh, and then besides that, Instagram, Facebook, the usual. that's the way I work it. So where can people find you online if they want to delve into your world? Oh, um, well, my website is alexandercoggin.com. And it's an experience. And it's really fun, even though I do need to update it which like stresses me out, like in the back of my mind. Um, My Instagram is at Alexander Coggin. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Messy Truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake and design is by Ruby White. You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at Jem Fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.